Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful today for your goodness and for just the opportunity to gather. Thank you for the body of Christ that you've established here and all over the world. And uh, Lord, we are mindful of who you are and uh, we just want to respond. Lord, we know the world seems dark, uh, but you are the light of the world. And there is a remnant, and we are excited to be a part of that. And so, Lord, have your way with us now. Please strengthen us. Lord, strengthen us today, please, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You turn to Titus 2, if you would. While we're turning there, can I just say this? Just, this is just off the cuff. Sometimes the off the cuff things are from the Lord, and sometimes they're off the cuff. But, uh, you know, this world seems crazy, does it not? And it seems like, I always, my brain always goes back to Elijah hiding in a cave. saying, I'm the only God follower left in Israel. And God says what? No, you're not. There's 7,000 of you. Right? And sometimes, I don't know, I just... I don't know if I woke up weird this morning or what. (laughs) But, you know, kind of just like... Sometimes you go through these phases where you're like, man, it's a a messed up world out there. And, And... uh, Tracy reminded me that uh, the Jesus Revolution was what? Like number 10 at the box office? Right? So, I mean, that's not, you know, it doesn't have to be the metric that we go for. But the point is, there, there's, a, there's a spiritual hunger out there. And there's a spiritual remnant out there. And um, we need to uh, be faithful in the midst of it. And... Um, uh, these verses here, as I'm thinking about them, are just great nuggets uh, to navigate through. So, last week we left off, anybody know where? Titus 2, verse 5, left off at 5, starting 6 today. Uh, Titus is an overseer of a group of churches on the island of Crete. Lots of good basic sort of principles of ministry that Paul has given to uh, this man Titus. Uh, chapter 2, <coughs> the beginning of chapter 2 started to break down uh, some of the instruction into sort of groupings of people. Now, as I say groupings of people, can I say, let's be careful not to overly group people, Okay. I'm just, as I'm kind of thinking through this a little bit in my mind today, and uh, we'll talk about this here in a little bit as we get towards the later part of the chapter, but uh, I think as a, as a society and, and maybe even as a, as a church, we tend to group people, lump them together, right? You've heard me say before, if I tell you I'm a homeschooler with big, from a big family, you automatically make all kinds of assumptions about me, right? Right? Like... We drink unpasteurized goat milk. Right? We quit doing that. 
right? I mean, there's all kinds of things you can, you can, you know, but we tend to do that, right? If somebody says, oh, I'm a conservative, well, that means this and this and this and this. Well, maybe it means just this and this, but not this, right? But we kind of lump people together, right? And so let's just be careful about that. Anyway, so last week we talked about uh, older men, older women, younger women, um, and um, particularly, let me just, uh, got a little feedback last week. Let me just uh, clarify, uh, some of the older, the older women are supposed to teach the younger women what? Basically how to love their husbands, love their children. Well, I won't want to butcher it. Uh, love their husbands, love their children, be discreet, chase homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Uh, some of you walked away and said, oh, that means I'm supposed to go fishing with my husband, right? And there was a little more to it than that. So um, that just happens to be, you know, kind of one of our things. But it's one of many of our things. But uh, husbands and wives need to enjoy hanging out together, right? Husbands, I think it's, uh, if I can say this, as nicely as I can, it's imperative that we find things to do with our wife, that our wife is uh, who we want to hang out with, and we do stuff together. You know, there's, there's 50,000 different hobbies you could all pick, right? Well, pick one that your wife likes, right? So that's the, uh, not to undo anything that was done last week, but that's just to clarify, clarify what I was saying last week. You want to bring any confusion last week. All right, so anyway, last, then we move into the rest of chapter two. Uh, we're going to talk about young men, um, uh, ministers, bond servants, and uh, all of that. And then at the end of chapter two, he goes into uh, some talk about grace and the coming of Jesus. So uh, a lot of great, I think, principles here. Everybody ready? Game on? When my uh, grandkids used to, when they were smaller even than they are now, and any of my kids, they would, uh, when they were younger and they'd want to take a tractor ride, right? Um, I always make them say, go, 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 before we go. So I won't make you do that, but if you were a grandkid, I would. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. We talked about some things about older men. And uh, we even tried to not define what older men meant so as to not offend anybody, including me. But now we go to younger men. And again, the age is not specified, but he says exhort young men to be sober-minded. Now, flip back, if you would, to verse 2. Older men are told to be sober. Now, younger men are told to be sober-minded. This is a different word in the Greek, which I think is kind of interesting this word means sane. I like that. Encourage the young men, just be sane, right? It means, um, uh, well, another usage of this word, remember when Jesus cast out the demons of the guy that had the legion of demons? And afterwards it says he was sitting there clothed and in his right mind. That's the word here that's used, sober-minded. And you think about that, and I, I, I kind of was reflecting on this a little bit. We have more control over our mind than we might think. Sometimes we think, well, I'm just a victim of my thoughts. 
and maybe even, I don't know if this applies, uh, it certainly doesn't apply exclusively to young men, but in the context here, it's written to young men, right? Young men sometimes are, they got a lot of energy, right? And their brains maybe are all over the map a little bit, okay? That can apply to any of us, we would agree. But there is a thing where, you know, Romans 12 always reminds me that we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Think about that for a second. I can be transformed. Transformed means I can be changed, like who I am, by the renewing of your mind. Now, obviously this is in a spiritual context, right? We have to, I mean, the more crazy our society gets, the more we have to, you know, keep this in a biblical context. But in a biblical context, I can be transformed toward godliness by the renewing of my mind. How can I renew my mind? Well, I can feed my mind with certain things. Is that fair? What do I choose to obsess over? or choose not to obsess over. Is that fair? You ever seen a guy that was, well, let's just say a young man. You ever seen a young man that's, that's like been shopping for a new car? You ever seen his phone? Well, there's this one, then there's this one, then there's this one, right? Then there's this one, right? Or he's got a new set of golf clubs, right? Well, there's this one. There's this one. There's this one. We first came to town. I needed a new. I needed a set of golf clubs, right? And I remember, um, that's when you guys may not know, but uh, they have these hybrid clubs. Am I familiar with what a hybrid club is? It's sort of an iron, sort of a wood, right? And I remember the guy at it was at the Bass Pro Shop. The kid, he's probably 30, but anyway, <laughs> he's like. Yeah, you should buy that set. The old guys love them. <laughs> so I didn't obsess over those clubs very long, right? What do we choose to consume our minds with, right? Scripture says, set your mind on things above. Set your mind. That's an imperative verb. It means do it. Set your mind on things above. So, young men, be sober-minded. And know this, you have the choice and the ability to be sober-minded. And we all do. That's certainly not unique to young men. In all things, showing yourself, now he's talking to Titus himself, to, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. Now, we don't know if Titus is, what age necessarily Titus is at this point. You know, he might be a young man because it's in the context of exhort young men, but it may just be Titus himself. So it's kind of a, um, really a little bit more of a blanket instruction. But show yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. So, Titus is supposed to show himself. How do we teach people generally? What's our most effective means of teaching? Is it by what I, what's the most effective means I have of teaching? Example, right? Example. 
I could, I could stand here and talk all day long, right? If my life is inconsistent with what I say, it negates everything, right? We've seen that. We've seen that over the years with people, right? I pray that you don't see it with me, right? I pray that my life validates what I say, and I pray that what I say is what God wants me to say, and that my life validates that. And there's lots that we can do that can either validate or invalidate what we say. But Titus is told to show himself to be a pattern of good works. I like that. Simply stated, good works are good works. Bad works are bad works, right? So often we know what we're supposed to do, and we just have a choice to do it or not. I mean, sometimes there are complicated decisions, and sometimes there are things we need to sort through and all that. But by and large, a lot of things are just good works or, or bad works, right? As a doctor, I'll have people all the time, they'll say, now what kind of, I mean, unless you need a specific diet, right, necessarily, but I mean, there are different situations. But anyway, people would say, now what kind of diet should I be on, right? Anybody ask your doctor that? Right? People ask me that. I'm like, well, generally, you can sit down, and this, this is good for me, you can look at the plate. Do you need a doctor usually to tell you if that lasagna is good for you or not? Yeah. With garlic bread? Three pieces. <laughs> if it's the second plate of lasagna... Do you need a doctor to tell you? You need to go to medical school figure this out. You know, by and large, most of what I do as a doctor does not require going to medical school. Most of it requires. <laughs> That's a whole other story. There's a lot of slippery slopes today, so just bear with me. You don't need a medical degree to figure out if something... You know, by and large, good works are good works. You don't need to be a theologian to decide to do good works. And guess what? Proverbs tells us that the path of the righteous is like the, sh the rise of dawn. I love this. Like the, like the I forget the exact wording, but the, the shine of dawn, or the, the light of dawn that shines brighter until the full day. You've been in the woods or outside or maybe at a, you know, when you've seen the sun come up and, this, and it's like dark. And, you know, there's just a little bit of light and you got a little more clarity and a little more clarity. And it's like, and it's so gradual and yet so quick that you can't even define, okay, that's the point that it became light. It just sort of happens, right? That's the path of the righteous. Guess what? You show yourself an example, show yourself by example to be a pattern of good works. And guess what's easier to do the next time? A pattern of good works. And guess what? After a little while, that just becomes who you are. And along the while, you've, uh, you've become sober-minded because you've chosen to set your mind on things above. You've chosen to walk in good works. It becomes who you are, right? You choose not to do those things, guess what? You struggle, right? So, Show yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity. Integrity 
Integrity, integrity. How much can we talk about integrity? All day. I might. Since you suggested it. My kids are crawling out of their skin right now. But anyway, <laughs> integrity is huge. And here's the interesting thing about integrity. We think integrity is like, okay, I'm not going to willingly cheat on my taxes. Yep, that's not integrity, right? We think integrity means I don't steal from the bank. Good. But I'm amazed, I'm constantly amazed how many people, maybe even in a professional setting, I had, I don't want to give away too much detail, I had a senior executive one time tell me, yeah, now this such and so, now if you quote me on this, I'm going to deny it. And I remember that conversation, and I'm like, in my mind, I'm thinking, really? And then that conversation ended a little bit. I just, you know me, I couldn't, I couldn't let go of it. Five minutes later, I call this person. I'm like, hey, just FYI, I don't know if I'm being out of line, but I just want you to know that you just told me that you're a liar. And you just told me that if you, have, if you ever have an opportunity, to, if you ever have a situation where it's more profitable to lie to me, you just told me that that's what you'll do. You just declared yourself a liar, and you've just told me that I can't trust you, right? I mean, I was a little more tame than this, but not much. And I just got to encourage you that integrity matters. And I'm doing this in the workplace to a senior executive. I shouldn't have to educate senior executives about integrity. But that's the world we live in. Right? It's amazing how often we reveal to someone, we think in a, in a benign situation, like I'm just talking to you over, a, over the water cooler, and I might tell you that I, uh, you know, did a little white lie to my kids or to my wife, like it's no big deal because I'm sharing it with you. Well, what that means is I've just told you that I, I won't have that, the filter required of integrity when the opportune time comes with you. We get that? It's important that we get this. Because integrity matters. The converse of this is true. Don't you want to be a person that people, when they tell you something, they know that you have integrity? Yeah. Or when you tell them something, they know you're spot on. They know they don't have to, they don't have to walk away and say, no, I wonder what he meant by that. I wonder if he was really, really? We need to be defined by integrity. Then reverence, you know, this is a bit of a recurrent theme, respect toward others. We need to manifest that. 
and incorruptibility. It's also translated sincerity or genuineness. Do people know that you are sincere? And can I say this? In order to be sincere, you have to have a genuine concern for others. And let me carry that one step further. In order to have a genuine concern for others, you've got to be thinking about who? Others. I can't care for you if I care more about myself. I can't be genuine if I care more about myself. I can't have empathy. I can't have real empathy or compassion for your situation if, I've, if I'm consumed with myself. So, in all things, show yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is, has, who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. Can everybody flip over to the left to Ephesians chapter 4? And I'm having you flip because I want you to see this with your, with your eyes and anchored in your hearts. Ephesians chapter 4, we're talking about sound speech. What verse am I going to, Bible students? 29. 29. When you're there, say there. there. Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Doesn't that sound rich? Is that how you want to be identified as one that talks like that? That no corrupt word, no corrupt word comes out of my mouth. Not a word. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Oh, by the way, that means I have some control over what comes out of my mouth. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. But what is good For necessary edification. What's edification? It's the building up of the other person. Not the tearing down of the other person. Necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. Now, are we all that way all the time? Raise your hand. No. But that's our standard. Right? That's our standard. Keep your hand in Titus. Turn over back to the right. After Hebrews, we'll come to James chapter 3. Here's the alternative. When you're there, say there. James chapter 3, starting in verse 2. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man able to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. You ever think about that? Entire horse. That's a big animal. That's an intimidating animal. You put a three-inch wide, whatever, four-inch wide piece of metal in a horse's mouth and control its mouth, You can control the whole thing. It's crazy. 
Look also at ships. Although they're so large and driven by fierce winds, they're turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Like the size of the rudder relative to the size of the ship. Pretty crazy how much you can turn a ship. Even so, the tongue is a little member, and it boasts great things. See how great a forest fire kindles? And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and, it's, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. So there you go. You have two ways we can use our tongues, right? Titus is encouraged to teach us to use sound speech, the kind of speech that edifies one another, right? Those verses in James would tell us that good luck with your tongue, right? So can we control our tongue in our own strength? No. We need supernatural strength, right? We need the power of the Holy Spirit to control our tongue. But we need to do it. And I uh, believe that strength is available to each and every one of us because we're told in Ephesians that this is the standard. God doesn't give us impossible standards. And so the standard is that we need to edify one another. So showing sound speech that cannot be condemned. So here's the thing. We might be accused, and we've said this before, this has come up several times. You know, you can be falsely accused of something. And, uh, you know, Christians are... are not uncommonly falsely accused of things. And yet the reality is, sooner or later, if there's no grounds for the accusation, sooner or later, usually, certainly in eternity, truth will prevail, right? And so we can be uh, at least comforted to know that if we have sound speech that's not condemned, at least in the eyes of God, then... um, then we can stand, stand on that. He said, exhort bond servants, verse 9, to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back. Okay? Bond servants. So in the ancient world, there were bond servants, right? Like if, if I were indebted to you, um, I would maybe uh, pay it back by labor. Like I would become your bond servant. Like, like willingly. I would willingly put myself under you know, servitude to you to pay off a debt, okay? Uh, Some people, even after uh, they were, after the debt is paid off, they may choose, and there's, uh, according to the Old Testament law, you could choose to remain a bondservant. Paul identifies himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ, right? The, the, The metaphor, the model plays out, right, that we choose to be bondservants of Jesus Christ. We never pay off our debt, by the way. We'll never pay off our debt to Jesus, but we can choose willingly to be lifelong servants of Jesus Christ. Well, in the, in the sort of secular world at that time, there were bond servants. There were bond servants of one person to another, like I might be uh, working for you in that context to pay off a debt. Now, in our day, right, we have banks. Banks make everything easier, right? No. But I don't really work... I don't really work off a debt to another person, but I might work as an employee of another person. So really the context here applied to our day is really an employee relationship, okay? So how does that work? Exhort employees 
to be obedient to their own masters, their boss, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back. So, can I tell you this? An, an employee who can say, sure, and then do the job is a, is a gold nugget to the employer, right? Right? If we're, in, if we're in situations of being an employer, I've kind of been, you know, both in some ways, right? So I kind of see both sides of it. And I can tell you, well, most of times I've been in these situations, it's been, let's say, with nurses that uh, are supposed to do what I ask them to do, right? If I can say, hey, can you do that? Like, there's a way I could say it, right? Hey, do this, right? Like, sometimes I'll start the sentence, nurse, right? Just to, because they think it's funny. Not really. But, you know, I might say, hey, can you do this, right? Can you order this test? And you know what just doesn't work real well with me? That part of it is I'm, I have a, my kids will tell you, sometimes dad's in the work mode, right? When dad's in the work mode, dad's in the work mode, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Most of you haven't seen me in the work mode, thank God. But my kids have. You know, when I say, hey, can you order this test for Mrs. Jones? If she says, why? Can you picture this? <laughs> can you guys picture this? <laughs> why? I don't think that's a good idea. I wouldn't do it that way. I'm feeling hot already. <laughs> you know, the doctor across the hall doesn't do it that way. Right? Now, if, you know, if I'm doing something like... Um, You know, if I'm making a mistake, you know, it's okay to say, hey, have you, did you realize that you're doing this for this, right? Or you, did you realize you messed that up? Or, I, I want to be teachable. I don't want to be approachable, right? But bond servants, to be obedient to their own masters, well-pleasing in all things, and not answering back. Like, to do the job with the good attitude is gold to the employer, Right? And by the way, as employees, is that a secular thing or is that our ministry? Good, good, good. All three of you got that, right? It's our ministry. When we go to work, we're carrying out our ministry, right? When we go to work, we need to carry out our ministry with an attitude with a reputation that says that guy or that gal is reliable and has a good attitude. That shouldn't be that hard, right? But if you ask any employer in the room, they'd say that's pretty rare. It shouldn't be rare in the body of Christ. So exhort bond servants to be that kind of person. Not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Not pilfering. That means don't rob from the boss or the company. Now, how do we rob from the boss or the company? Do we, steal their, do we get into their petty cash drawer and steal their money? 
No. Do we do we rob some? Do sometimes people get robbed? Yeah. How is it? Time, right? If you're paying me for an eight-hour day, I need to give you an eight-hour day, right? You ever you ever worked with somebody who's like, you know, they show up half hour late and then go get a cup of coffee. On the way to the coffee pot, they run into somebody at the water cooler. They talk about the game last night. Get the cup of coffee. I mean, by the time they mosey back to their desk, it's lunchtime, right? And that's how they live their day, right? You ever worked with these people, right? If you're an employer, I guarantee you, it'll drive you crazy. If you're a fellow worker, it'll also drive you crazy because guess what they're not doing? They're not carrying their load. Right? Again, does it, and then they find out that you're a Christian. Does this reflect well on the, on the body of Christ? No. So, not pilfering. Showing, but showing all good fidelity. Right? Showing all good fidelity. The word means moral conviction or constancy. Does your employer know that you're reliable and trustworthy? Can your employer ask you to do a job... Because I will tell you this, your employer sees a bigger picture of the world than you do in terms of the, in terms of the job situation, okay? Your, your employer sees kind of your piece of it, but also sees more, more pieces in a lot of ways. And your employer needs to be able to say, hey, can you uh, take care of that thing? And then they need to move on and do to the next thing, right? They don't need to say, hey, can you take care of it and then do that thing? thing and then they're over here and then they hey by the way can you um do that thing i asked you to do a half hour ago yeah and then they're on their way over to the other thing. Oh, hey by, by the way um what's that employer going to do sooner or later never mind i'll find somebody to do it see ya right again simple basic very practical principles in the scripture these things may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. See this? The adorn. We can, we can decorate what it means to be a Christian by how we act in the workplace. We can like decorate. We can adorn the doctrine of God. This is what it means to be a Christian. By the way I demonstrate my integrity, by the way I demonstrate my attitude, by the way I demonstrate all these principles in the workplace. That's our ministry, if we're an employee. It's a great principle. He says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now, we make a transition now. You may, you may recall over the last couple of weeks, one of the things Paul is trying to accomplish with Titus is he's trying to correct a couple of errors in, in the... Um, in sort of the, the pattern of teaching that's going on in this time period. One was the legalists, right? We talked about that, and that he talks about uh, in chapter 1. And the other is sort of the permissives, and he's, and he's or, or we might say the progressive uh, Christianity in our day, right? The, the idea that, hey, if God saves me by grace, hey, I can do, that means I can do whatever I want, Right? 
And this is what he's kind of combating here. He says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So we should live godly in response to the grace of God. We should live godly in response to the grace of God. The order is very important. Now, I do want to pause here for a second. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now, if you've been here for a good little while, um, just roll your eyes quietly for a second. But I'm going to be what would appear to you to be redundant. Okay? But uh, for the sake of those who have not heard this, uh, I think this is so critical in the Scripture. And that is God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Okay? And this is a verse that I... When I come to these kind of verses, I want to talk about it. God's sovereignty means God is in control. God is so in control that God saves us. Does God save us? God saves us. God saves us. We, we don't even have the capacity to really, in our own strength, say yes to God. Much less to live the Christian life. Much less to earn our way to heaven. Right? So we are fundamentally, at the core, dependent upon God's sovereignty, God's grace to save us. Fair enough? On the other hand, are we responsible for our actions? Yes. So when I, got, when I became a Christian, did I choose to become a Christian or did God pull me into Christianity? Yes, yes, right? And it feels kind of, you know, and, and these things are beyond our brain because thankfully we worship a God who's smarter than we are, okay? So we don't have to try to fully understand it all because God is smarter than we are. Fair enough? And furthermore, I think of it as like, we all live sort of on this spectrum of, from responsibility to sovereignty. Is that fair? And we're all... Please catch this, because we all come from different backgrounds, and I want us to all kind of huddle, like, huddle up like one big happy family. We all live at slightly different points on that spectrum. Does that make sense? I think this tremendously helps. I mean, when I kind of got my head around this, it frankly helped my marriage, because I'm a little more of a, of a sovereignty person, and Tracy's a little more of a responsibility person, Right? And so when she says something or does something that feels a little more on the responsibility side, that doesn't have to be annoying or, or challenging or offensive to me, right? I just kind of recognize who she is, and I appreciate who she is. I don't have to make her be at my point on that exact spectrum. Does that make sense? And the converse is true. When she says, hey, you know, we ought to worry more about this, and I'm like, yeah, God will work it out, whatever, right? I'm not blowing her off, and God will work it out, whatever, right? It just seems like I am, right? But once she understands that I'm a little more of a sovereignty person, it, she cuts me a little bit of slack in that. Is that fair? And I think if we can all understand that we're not all exactly at the same point on this spectrum, it helps us kind of live in harmony a little bit better. Okay? Now, there are what I would call cliffs off of each end of the spectrum. Okay? The cliff off of the responsibility side is... You've heard me say this example before because I grew up in a church that taught this. You know that lady at Walmart, the cashier? She's having a bad day. She doesn't know the Lord. 
And if you don't witness to her now, she might go to hell. It's going to be your fault. Right? Is that a trip? Is that the heart of God? No. That's the, gar- that's the cliff. Fair enough? Hold with me. There's a cliff over here too. Right? What's the cliff over here? And I'm a little bit passionate about this because this is, this is alive and well in the body of Christ today. The cliff over here is, you know, God is so sovereign. He saves some and some he doesn't. If you're not one of the ones he saved, oh well. Too bad, so sad for you. Because he only died for a few of us. The elect. Does that reflect the heart of God? No. I will... There's very few theological arguments that will just really get my dander up. But that one does. Because I believe it undermines the fundamental love of God. And so I like this verse, and verses like it, and there are others like it. And I pause to do this whole thing again because this verse calls for it. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to just a few, to all men. You may, theologians, use the word limited atonement. You may hear, you may hear that. Like, he only, his his his. His death on the cross is only for the limited, one, uh, limited few. Okay? But my Bible says the grace of God that, that brings salvation has appeared to all men. I call it a guardrail. This is a sovereignty guardrail. Fair enough? Keeps us from falling off the cliff. You want to be anywhere on that spectrum? Have at it. And w- guess what? We're all going to be at various places on that spectrum. And we don't need to fix... If somebody's one side or the other of you, we don't need to fix them. And we'd actually do well to stop trying to fix them. But there are, there are cliffs. And we need guardrails on this cliff, right? Cliff over here. For by grace you've been saved, and not, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Right? I'm not saved by works. Right? That's a, that's a, that's a responsibility guardrail verse. Fair enough? So we have these guardrail verses. We have this spectrum, this is the way I picture it at least, and, and hopefully that's helpful. But the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all people. It's important to know that God's grace is really what drives us. We don't don't live this Christian life to try to be good. We don't live this Christian life, honestly, to try to do anything except to respond to the love and grace that he's already extended since before the foundation of time. That's how we live teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So it seems sometimes like a little bit of a paradox to some people that, okay, I'm forgiven, and so therefore I need to, like, live so I don't, you know, need to be forgiven again. That seems paradoxical, but it's really... A thankful response. And it's liberating. It's liberating to me if I know that I'm, I can walk in grace. Right? We, Nate went through this on Wednesday nights when we went through Romans. Right? God's grace 
means I don't have to be a slave to sin. Romans chapter 6. means I have the freedom to live accordingly in grace. Right? I have the freedom to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. I have the freedom to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. But know this. Like any relationship, God initiated it and we respond. God initiated and we respond. Any, any relationship has an initiator and a responder. Fair enough? The marriage relationship, Ephesians chapter 5, likens the husband and the wife to Christ and the church. Right? The uh, the husband is like Christ. The bride is like the church, right? The husband is to be the initiator. By the way, by the way, parenthetically, husbands need to pursue their wives. Husbands need to pursue their wives, right? Wives need to respond to that pursuit. They need to receive that love, right? The analogy is Christ in the church. He initiated, we respond. And so the order is very important. We don't try to earn. We just respond to what's already been done, what's already been initiated. And so we respond to His grace. And what's it look like? It looks like we turn away from ungodliness. We turn away from worldly lusts. The worldly lust, by the way, is anything that the world thinks is cool that's contrary to Scripture. And the list is growing. So just heads up. And we turn to living soberly, righteously, and godly. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I love this. We look back at what God has already done, right? God initiated that relationship with me since before the foundation of time. He did all of this, and yet He's also coming back. So I can look back and I can look forward to the fact that He's coming back. Now, I believe there's, the Scripture talks about a, first, uh, a pre-tribulation rapture of the church, right? That's a $3 word for there's going to be a time of tribulation on planet earth described pretty explicitly in revelation that's going to be seven years of horrific times horrific and i believe immediately prior to that rapture of the church or prior to that tribulation the church is going to be raptured the word means the the it's a latin word rapturo um in Thessalonians, which means caught up. Okay? And we see it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And the idea is that Jesus could come back any moment. Right? And we should live with that expectancy. Remember, me, remember I said a few weeks ago, uh, when we were talking about first, uh, Second Timothy being Timothy's last book, or Paul's last book. And I said, you know, if you knew you were going to die in a few, you know, within a couple weeks, would that change your life? Well, the same question applies. If you thought Jesus might come back this afternoon, 
Will that change your life? Should it change your life? What's the right answer? No. Shouldn't change your life at all. If you knew Jesus was coming back this afternoon, shouldn't change your life at all. Right? Now, do we still need to, like, have a long-range vision and, you know, save your money and, you know, whatever. All that kind of stuff, right? Exercise. Do all that stuff. Change the oil in your car so it'll go another 3,000 miles. Supposed to do all that stuff? Get a colonoscopy. I mean, the list goes on, right? That whole list is endless, right? (laughs) Should we do all that stuff? Yeah, that's okay. But in the moment, if we had an expectancy that Jesus might come back this afternoon, that should affect how we think, right? But if we have that awareness, if we're living like there's that awareness, then that reality shouldn't change how we live. Fair enough? Just like we said, the right answer is, if I know I'm going to die in two weeks, what should I do differently? The right answer is nothing. Right? It means I'm living in that sort of a way. Right? And that's how we should live in light of the fact that we're looking. We're looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're looking forward to it. We can look back on what He's done, the relationship that He's initiated, the grace of God that brings salvation that's appeared to all men. We can look back to that, and we can look forward to His, to his coming. That should affect how we live. Notice also, just FYI, who is Jesus Christ? Our great God and Savior. Is Jesus God? Yes. How do we know? We know from various places. Here's one of them. Titus 2.13. He is, Jesus is God. That's a, that's a great Trinity verse. Verse 14. Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So you've got to love this. God saves us, right? The grace of God that's appeared as a... It's like we have past, present, and future. All right? Past, the grace of God has appeared to all men. We've been saved. Future, he's coming back. We can look forward to that at any moment. Right? Present, I need a little more purification. Right? He says, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, that he, he saved me, and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So again, God does that work. God saved me. God also continues to mold me and shape me into his image. Does that make sense? So I can, thank, I can be thankful for what he's done. I can be thankful for what he's about to do, and I can, and I can be thankful, or what he's going to do at some point in the future when he comes back, and I can be thankful for what he's doing in my life today. And I need to be mindful of all three. Does that make sense? I need to be mindful of all three, that he has saved me and that he can purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. 
Hebrews tells us he's the author and the finisher of our faith. He saved me, and he'll grow me into that person that he needs me to be. Right? And again, that's a little bit of a sovereignty statement, but I, I like it. I like it. I think it's biblically consistent. Says he who began, he says he who, he's the author and finisher of our faith. Says that in Philippians, he who began a good work and you will complete it. Who's doing the work? Jesus. Romans chapter 8 says whom he foreknew, he knew who was going to follow him. Right? Got to remember, he's outside of space and time. His brain works way beyond ours. He knew we were going to be saved. Says whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He does all the work. He did all the work. He does all the work. He will do all the work. Right? What do we do, with, what do, we do in response to that? We say thanks and live accordingly. Right? We say thanks and live accordingly. Speak these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. So if we walk in this, this is the righteousness that he wants us to walk in because we're thankful for what he's done, because we're thankful for what he's doing, because we're thankful for what he's going to do when he comes back. We can walk in righteousness. We can speak these things with authority because we know them to be true. And guess what? There may be people that despise us, right? So if we live godly lives, we're going to experience persecution. Is that part of the deal? Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah. Right? We just keep going in the meantime. We just need to not give them reason to despise us. So, regardless of our phase of life or our situation or whatever kind of demographic we want to call ourselves, we need to honor God and we need to be an example to others. We're motivated by His grace. We're motivated by His soon return. We're motivated by thankfulness for what He's doing in our lives today. And with that, we respond to His love. Simple formula for life, right? Simple formula for life. We love Him because He first loved us because of all that he's done, because of all that he's doing, because of all that he's going to do. And the order is critical. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you've blessed us above and beyond all we can ask or think. We thank you that the grace of God has appeared to each and every one of us. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to each and every one of us for us to choose. We thank you that you not only redeemed us, but you desire to purify us. We thank you that you will be coming back and we can look forward to that great and glorious appearing of you. We thank you for all these things. Lord, we just ask that we would respond with lives of thankfulness, with words of thankfulness, with sound speech, with integrity, with transformed minds, with all of these things that would serve you wholeheartedly. Lord, thank you that you make that way possible for us.
Help us to walk in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.